This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. If you haven't followed the evolution of video games, it's hard to get past certain things that you think about it, maybe even certain stigma about video games. But it's absolutely wild to see where that particular genre is going in the form of entertainment and spending time. So we're going to take some time right now and examine this. And we're going to do it with the help of Professor Robert Mulbach, who is here from Fanshawe College, where he teaches a course on theory in video games, among other courses at Fanshawe College. And Professor Mulbach, it's great to have you with us. Can we maybe start even with your course and look at what you run through in that course? The first week, we usually do a rough history of video games. And then we kind of move into the industry and, you know, what's what's new in the industry, trends and, you know, how to develop games. Um, week three and four, we get into technical stuff, progressive and emergent gameplay, which is, again, gameplay that moves sequentially. And emergent gameplay is ga- uh, games where students or, pardon me, players can make choices that they want to make. So like in an open world game or a game where you can go into a facility so you could sneak into the facility or you could decide to go on guns blazing. So, again, players have the choice. So that's emergent design where you give them the choice, whereas progressive is like in a straight line. Then we go into games as stories. Um, that would be another week. And then a week we do um, motivation in gaming, which is kind of where you get to, you know, why are people attracted to games? And that's where you can kind of get into addiction. And we will talk about education. We'll talk about violence in games and other social social issues. And then we talk about games in the future, where, where the medium is headed. Wow. I, it already sounds like, so, of course, <laughs> I think people need to take to truly appreciate where video games are right now. Because, again, if you don't play them and you read about things and you think, well, the violence in video games is destroying our kids. And we'll talk about that in sure. a little bit. But, but overall, you look at where games used to be and you look at, you know, whether it was – Pong or tanks or whatever the early ones were, and then Atari and Intellivision and ColecoVision. Right. Well, you, the, you know your stuff. Yeah, I'm impressed with that. But they're little little blippy guys. Right. And that was more just filling time. Are games right now? Where would you equate them? Would they be like almost like a movie genre, better than a movie? How do you describe what they've become? I'm incredibly biased, obviously, but to me, video games are the most important medium of our time. This is truly what okay, I, I think. I love this. Yeah, no, seriously. I think, I think that will shape everything. And I mean, I know that sounds like hyperbole. Um, but the problem is we're not there yet. Video games are still in their infancy. I mean, I try to convince my wife that game stories are really important, that, that video games can tell a good story, a story that can make you cry. And I try to show her these cutscenes and, and she will say, and it's not just her bias, it's even other people. Uh, because all they hear about is Fortnite. All that they hear about are these giant popular games, whether it's Halo or Gears of War. And there's nothing inherently wrong with these games. But I mean, w- the way I tell my students, like, they, they basically hear about the Transformers or the Marvel movies of video games. That's what they hear. And so they're not seeing the smaller, the, the indie games, the really personal stories, the ones that really, or even, I mean, even my favorite story is Red Dead Redemption, which is a tale, you know, again, so the sequel just came out and it was really good and the mechanics were kind of tedious. But I mean, just the story of John Marston, anti-hero who, you know, trying to locate his family and the cast of characters and the voice work that is introduced, a really moving story, Telltale's uh, The Walking Dead, the first one. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but I mean, 
It's a relationship between, you know, a man and a, and a little girl that he protects. There's a real parental aspect to it. Same thing with a game called The Last of Us. So, so people who know games who have played these have really, um, really responded to them and they're, they're really emotional. Um, so anyway. Yeah. Can I tell you a story about Red means. Dead Redemption? Yes, sure. We were at the dinner table. My son had purchased Red Dead Redemption 2. Yeah. And we're at the dinner table. My wife and I are sitting there and she looks up and she says, you're going to play, uh, Red Dead Redemption tonight, I want to come down and watch. We got immersed in the story. We Did watched you? it as a story. He played it as the game. Yeah. But that's how good it was. And that's when you you kind of went, wait a minute. This is more than just I have a controller in my hand like right. I used to when when I was, you know, 10 years old, 15 years old. And it's do, 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 yeah. do. It's not like that anymore. I, you know, the idea that that it does have that kind of an importance, does it still have a stigma, do you think, that it has to get through? Or would a younger generation not even see that stigma? Is it the older generation that's saying, uh, still a video game, still wasting your time? Um, it depends. Video games will always be looked at, at as a big time waster, and I think that's really sad. Um as I, all of us waste our time in different ways. This is how I always look at it, right? Like who, who I don't, I don't really play sports. You know that, right? Sports is your life. So even someone who plays golf, I don't really care about golf. Some people, they live for golf, but who am I to go to that person who plays golf and say, oh, you're wasting your time. It's stupid. And then you have other people who are like, you know, well, I read books all the time and that's great. I do too. You know, what exactly are you reading? Are you reading National Geographic all the time? Are you reading pulp novels? Outlander's a great series. I don't know if you've heard about it, right? Very popular book. Some people could easily dismiss it as pulpy soap opera nonsense. I think it's great. It has value. It has characters who empathize with their struggles. And so again, but and yet people look at these games and again, I think it all comes down to genre. If you if all you watch are video games where people are endlessly shooting each other in an arena, I can understand how you would say, "Oh, that's a giant waste of time." But I do this in my course where I say people can look at games as sports. There's the game as sport. And so, again, they call, they're called PvP games. So people, people versus people. And so um, whether it's giant arenas or team-based sports. Um, and so, again, the idea is, is that is that wasting time? Well, that's why you go to games. Are, are sports a waste of time? You certainly wouldn't say that. I would imagine you would say the sports give you all of, you know, they give you exercise, self-esteem, all these other positive traits. Um, you could make the same claim about games. It's just, again, I think taste comes into it where people just don't really like it. We're joined by Professor Robert Mulbach, who is a professor at Fanshawe College and has a course on the theory of video games, among other courses. And Professor Mulbach has already told us that he believes it is the most important medium of our time. And I shared a story, if you missed it, before the break about my wife and I basically watching our son play Red Dead Redemption 2 because it was a movie. It was great. It was it was beautiful to watch, and there was a lot of entertainment value to it. And there are a lot of games out there like that. But, Professor Malbach, why don't we look right now at education? Because you don't necessarily equate video games with education unless you're looking at some kid's game with a cartoon squirrel teaching five-year-olds basic math. Sure. Now, this is where, again, I have strong opinions, but I have strong opinions on all of this stuff. Um, you would think that I'm going to sit here and tell you, yeah, game, I mean, games are the future and we'll all be learning with games. And I mean, the research that I've done, people learn with games. They really do. And their motivation for learning with games is much stronger than in traditional ways of the teacher and pen and pencil and whatnot and paper. 
Um, do they learn better with games? Not necessarily. So that's kind of what the research shows. And a lot of the times I find anecdotally people will say, oh, video games have taught me how to manage my money or they've given me motivation or things like that. And it's kind of like, well, the research often shows that these skills aren't transferable. So as I always joke with my students, you know, did the motivation to beat the latest game that you sunk so many hours into, did that translate into you sinking as many hours into your final project? Did you put in those eight extra eight hours to proofread it, right? No, you probably didn't, did you? Because the motivation helped you play other games. And that's kind of where that comes from. Now, as far as hard skills, yes, for sure. Literacy, mathematics, um, games do teach us with that. Um, Minecraft, obviously, spatial structures, building engineering. You know, I mean, Minecraft, as you know, has a huge following. My son wants to play Super Mario Maker. So just this whole idea of design and creation. Um, so that's important. That flexes creativity muscles. Um, are we at a stage now? I don't know if video games will ever replace teachers. I mean... Um, and, and, and nor should they, by the way, <laughs> but, uh, it, it all depends on the game. So Assassin's Creed, uh, origins. Um, so it's about Egypt. Now they have modes where you can just tour ancient Egypt, um, and learn facts. And about is it that pretty accurate? No, it is, but you raise a really interesting point because sometimes you will have military games or games set in historical places that are real that take liberties, uh, with the history. So the architecture will be correct and they'll throw in a few, items, flavor text that you read and you're like, oh, I learned something, but then they'll twist the history in this other way. So if you're not familiar with that, then you'll walk away with a distorted version of history. So it's, I don't know, it's tricky and, and you need to be aware of that when you come to video games. Otherwise, again, you're going to get blindsided and fed misinformation. Are you finding, because there are games that will take, say, the city of Chicago and say, there it is, or Oakland right. and San Francisco, and boom, there you go. There's there's one game in particular that's that has done that. Are we finding more well, game it, makers? Do you mean Fallout 4? So Fallout 4 did Boston, and they did yeah. Boston Landmarks. Okay, that's, but that's, that's a, a post-apocalyptic post yeah. <laughs> setting. But still, I mean, they do the Landmarks. I mean, the, the, so the Ubisoft games, whether it's Assassin's Creed or, yeah, yeah, they're famous for this, for taking yeah. specific architectural you know designs and buildings and putting them in their games and... Yeah, um, but you, you can go to Fenway Park and right. One no, of those. Exactly. It doesn't look like Fenway no, Park know, anymore. It's a little bit different, but yeah. But that's <laughs> really neat. Are we finding game makers more willing to do that, or is it just kind of whatever they want to do? If they want to distort history a little bit to make it fit the game, they're going to do that. There's there's no label on the box saying no, here this this is factually accurate to ninety nine point nine exactly. And so then we come with that whole idea, and this is really tricky too. And this is something I talk about. Uh, in the course is the designer's ethical responsibility and the, and the idea that do, do they even have one? And in some cases, no, and, and nor should they because, or well, maybe, um, they're artists and they're creating a product and they take artistic license and that's, that's up to them. Now, granted, at the same time, there's this idea that they should be aware that their audience is probably largely impressionable teenagers, youth, maybe some uneducated adults, right? And this idea that if the IDs aren't communicated clearly or misinformation is um, proposed, that it could have bad consequences. Um, but, you know, is, is designers will always design what they want to. And again, that's, that's the, th the thing that I teach in the course too, which, which anyone should. Design the game that you want. Right. Like, I'm not here to tell you, no, you can't put that in a game, you know, because then they cry, oh, that's censorship. Like, design whatever you want. Know that your games exist in a real world, right? That will interpret them however he or she wants and just be aware of that. We are talking video games with Professor Robert Malbach. Kind of the, the theory, the makeup of it, getting a better understanding of games. If you're thinking, pachoo, 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 <laughs> then just investigate a little bit more and take a look at what games are. Now, 
violence does come up and mm-hmm. violence is equated to violence in real life sometimes or, you know, all these shooter games. What are they doing? When you take a broad look at violence in video games, because it does exist, but mm-hmm. it exists in movies and TV and on the street if you look close enough. How do you see violence portrayed and, and what's it doing? So again, we get to that idea of do designers have an ethical responsibility to limit the violence in their games and does violence in games cause violence in the real world? It's it's This topic never goes away and just when I think that in 2019 it will, what's so interesting is we have mass shootings in the States, we have the president of the United States, Donald Trump, blaming video games and this is in 2019 and then what does Walmart do? Walmart removes the video games or the displays, doesn't stop selling the guns or the bullets, right? But they remove... Uh, the guns, or pardon me, they remove the video games. I can't believe that. Um, so all of, okay, most, if not all of the research shows that violence in media does not correlate to violence in real life. In certain, the APA has said, and of course they have to, in certain individuals, violent media might have an effect and promote or instigate violence. And that that's true of, of anything, but again, certain individuals, but on a large mass scale it doesn't. It's just entertainment. Um, people go to it with an open mind. Um, there's a wonderful book. I can't recommend this book enough. It's called Moral Combat. I forget the authors, but Moral Combat. Take off on mortal combat. Yeah, ex- exactly. Okay. Right. A, a great pun. And the uh, and it, these uh, psychologists go through uh, exhaustively great research, this whole idea of the correlation between real-world violence and video game violence. And again, the conclusions are that they've been vastly... Um, exaggerated, that there's no real meaningful connection between the two. Um, now, this opens up another topic of, you know, so should little kids. Little kids are impressionable, right? I mean, even some adults are impressionable. So, you know, it, th- there's the ESRB, there's warning labels. People need to know this when they go in. But, you know, on a, on a mass scale, uh, they don't affect real world violence. And yet we can't get away from this topic. And I don't know if it will ever... Um, go away. I really don't. I mean, I, I never would have thought this would become, quote unquote, like a thing. Wow. I really wouldn't have thought that. But now uh, in 2019, there's still shootings. Yeah. But I mean, it, it must go back to parenting. You know, you, you don't give your child a steak knife and say, no. hey, have a good afternoon. Right. You got to make sure that you're sitting and saying, OK, what, what are you playing today? You know, is it the exactly. little bubbly guy floating through the sky and he's teaching you letters of the alphabet or the- are you playing hitman and pretending no. to be one? <laughs> The the strange thing, I mean, there's so many age-appropriate video games out there. There there really are, and they're really wonderful. So I don't even, I mean, my kids come home and they'll tell me the same thing. They'll tell me that some of their friends have watched uh, rated R movies, that they've watched It. We're talking about like 9 and 10-year-old kids. My parents let me watch It. Now, whether they're lying just to get attention or not, but I don't think they are. No. And I'm like, what, well, what were your parents thinking? Or Deadpool, that was another one. A hard R rating if you've seen Deadpool. And a fabulous movie. Hilarious, right? Yeah. But still. If you're this, older. I, this, exactly. And so, yes, parenting is a big issue. And I have students that tell me that they have worked at EB Games and they have, you know, had young kids who come in who want to buy, you know, the Call of Duties and the GTAs and whatnot. And they've had to say no. And then the parents comes in and the parent gets mad why won't you sell my son or daughter you know the game and it's like well i have to ask you you know yeah i can't do that there are laws and i'll just give it to them and so i just finished telling you that media doesn't really affect us and there's no real world violence well i mean that's yes i mean the translation is often not oh i saw someone kill someone in a video game now i'm going to kill someone but that does not discount games or media media does affect us Mm -hmm. subconsciously unconsciously um and so the idea would be that, yeah, parents need to use discretion uh, when, which, for which games they allow their kids to play. 
In closing, where do you see video games going? Again, we've gone from the very basics to, you know, black and white blips on the screen to where we are now, which is, you know, real voice actors, real actors in movies. Their characters look like them and they are, they're just, they're immersive. They're beautiful. You want to know the story. You have some impact on the story. How do we go further? Can we? So I thought when virtual reality became popular that it would it would be it would take off uh, the same way. But uh, maybe some people thought the same way about 3D movies. When we had 3D movies, I thought that was the end of the 2D movie. I didn't know if you thought that either. Yeah. And, then, and then what happened? I well, thought the same about virtual reality right. too. We all went to the 3D movies and we said, "Oh, it's kind of awkward, and I don't want to wear the glasses." <laughs> and I'm I'm just I'm happy seeing a 2D movie. At least I am. I'm fine yeah. with that. In fact, I'm I actively seek those out. And I feel the same way about video games. Virtual reality is interesting. It's cool. It's expensive. It, the technology is still not quite there. Um, 2D games can achieve the same emotional impact. You talk about graphics, and, and they have gone. They're, like, incredibly photorealistic. That's what we're dealing with now. There's there's a push for that, more photorealism, more, uh, you know, motion capture with faces. So, you know, so you don't have that whole uncanny valley effect where the person looks like a robot or an android <laughs> where they're really trying to erase that. And yet... Games that have really low graphical fidelity can still be incredibly emotional. Uh, there's a game called Celeste, just 8-bit graphics from Nintendo, was nominated for Game of the Year. Wonderful story, immersive, engaging, um, you know, mental illness, self-doubt, you know, it, it was phenomenal. And so I think games are going in, in those two directions. You will have people who push for graphical fidelity. We got a PS5 coming out next Christmas, allegedly, with even more horsepower behind it, right? So you'll have graphical fidelity, you'll have more realistic graphics and all that stuff. And then you will have people who don't have that technology, who don't have the skills, but who will make really impressive and moving indie games that push the medium forward uh, in its own direction that, of course, are just as meaningful and just as important. Um, I'm excited about the future. I always am for video games. I think there's still much untapped talent and resources out there. And so it'll be great. Well, Professor Malbach, it's been great having you here to talk about this. It's something we've never really explored, certainly not to this extent. Thank Thank you so much. Professor Robert Malbach from Fanshawe College. We'll have to do this again. Let's get some perspective from the Canadian Cancer Society, from senior policy analyst Rob Cunningham, to at least without the government saying, okay, this is going to be great, I, I don't want that rhetoric. But to talk with somebody who can say, okay, here's what they're doing with regard to either cigarettes or even vaping. So, Rob, let's look at the legislation for vaping, for plain packaging for cigarettes, and what this means from your perspective. On the vaping, we've had this uh, enormous problem of a dramatic increase in youth vaping, uh, increasing by 74% in a single year among 16 to 19-year-olds from 2017 to 2018. And we just see it out in communities. High school principals are raising issues about uh, students vaping in bathrooms, and they're, they're, they're grappling with how to deal with it. So in Ontario, unlike seven other provinces, which have already banned um, advertising in convenience stores, uh, allowing it uh, you know, in retail stores that are especially vape stops, Ontario, when a kid could go into a convenience store to buy um, a chocolate bar or a soft drink, they'd be faced with all of these ads. Uh, for vaping products, and that shouldn't be happening. So this new regulation, effective January, uh, will stop that. 
Okay, and do you believe it will have an impact on the number of students? Like that number that you just pointed to, that's a that's a significant number. Do you believe it'll have an impact? I, I do think it'll have an impact. Um, at the same time, there's much more we can do. Uh, for example, uh, e-cigarettes shouldn't be sold in convenience stores at all, especially flavored e-cigarettes. And you know, cannabis, we have limited or alcohol, we have limited distribution. And so these products should be sold only in especially vape stores. Uh, federally, um, you know, there could be an opportunity to restrict flavors. We have several thousand potential flavors. Um, it's a wild west out there. These are attractive to kids. I mean, Ontario could do that as well. Uh, but in the United States, we're seeing the, the U.S. Trump administration uh, taking action to restrict the available flavors on the market. So we can do that in Canada. The federal government can have a maximum nicotine level of 20 milligrams per milliliter. Right now it's 66. The European Union is 20. So that's the standard. And so these, some of these new products, such as Juul at 59 or Vipe at 57, are almost triple uh, the European Union maximum. So that's making kids addicted. Also, the federal government can be taking action on advertising in general because e-cigarette advertising is still possible to be on television, on radio, on billboards, um, all kinds of outdoors, on social media, um, on the Internet, places where kids are exposed. And so that's wrong. And so that needs to be contained. And you know, we have urged health groups, um, have urged that the new government, um, shortly after taking office, take action. Uh, to, to deal with this um, you know, really serious development with respect to youth vaping. We're talking with Rob Cunningham, Senior Policy Analyst with the Canadian Cancer Society. Uh, we're touching on vaping right now. We'll get to packaging on cigarettes as well, which is legislation today. Why do you think that the government did not go further than what they did? Um, well, uh, I think it, in a way it's when you have a, a traffic accident and you get a traffic light. And this was a new product, and I think there wasn't a perception. Now, we had made recommendations to have an advertising ban or advertising restrictions similar to tobacco. Our recommendations before parliamentary committees were not adopted. Um, and I think uh, you know, this dramatic increase in youth vaping has totally changed the analysis about the urgency of taking a series of additional measures, similarly in, in the United States. Um, so we, we, but, you know, we should have learned our lessons. Um, from 40 years ago with the tobacco industry. And with the, and it's the tobacco companies today that are increasingly dominating the vaping product market, and their marketing tactics are similar to what they used to do for tobacco. And we simply shouldn't allow that. Um, and they have a conflict of interest. They're selling both cigarettes and, and, uh, and vaping products. They, they certainly benefit a lot with a new generation of kids being hooked on nicotine, uh, which is what's happening to replace those smokers who quit or who die. Sure. Let's turn to cigarettes and cigarette advertising and the fact that we do now see the call for or action of no advertising, plain packaging, that sort of thing. How do you look at that? It's a really important step, and it's taken a while to get here. 25 years ago, in 1994, the House of Commons Standing Committee on Health recommended plain packaging based on the evidence available at that time. We've since had 16 uh, countries adopt uh, this requirement. Getting rid of all the colorful brand graphics and logos and images, just having the health warning, and all packages and the brand part, it's a drab brown, unattractive. To take away the opportunity for the package to have promotional value, to have it as a mini billboard conveying positive images 
uh, or lifestyle images for, for cigarettes. That simply shouldn't be happening given the nature of the product. And, uh, you know, the, the experience in other countries, Australia, Britain, France has been successful. Uh, these packages um, are starting to appear on store shelves. Uh, they've been strongly opposed by tobacco companies, and uh, that, that's a big signal to us. If, if they weren't so strongly opposed, if it wasn't going to reduce their sales, uh, then they wouldn't be, they'd, they'd accept them. But, you know, they've been fighting this for, for several decades. Rob Cunningham with us, Senior Policy Analyst with the Canadian Cancer Society. The difference between plain packaging and the scary packaging where you saw pictures of people who had cancer that had disfigured them or you saw black lungs, things like that. Do you see this plain packaging as being better or any different? Well, actually, the the health warnings with those graphic images are going to continue to appear on 75% of the package. But it's okay. the remainder of the package that will get rid of the brand colors and logos and graphics. So you get the best of both worlds. You get rid of the industry's promotional element, the brand portion, and you keep the health warning. And this will make the health warning more impactful because no longer will the eye have to compete, you know, for attention, uh, you know, with the, the brand part versus the health warning. So that's, that's going to be a definite gain for us. Part of these regulations also is going to ban slim cigarettes that are targeted at women uh, that are attractive to young girls. Many girls uh, begin smoking because they want to lose weight or be fashionable. That's simply wrong given the nature of the product. So those Slim's packages and those Slim cigarettes are going to be banned in Canada. Uh, ultimately, we're going to have the best plain packaging regulations in the world. There's still an additional two-year transition period for another type of package to be introduced, a slide-and-shell format, um, which is going to make the warnings even bigger. Um, we're, and we're going to have the, the largest health warnings in the world. Uh, so this is a, a very positive measure. The full effect is going to, to uh, be over time. Um, you know, as kids are no longer exposed to these and, and uh, you have the full impact over time. Um, but it's a very, really positive measure. Rob, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks very much. Great, great to be with you. Rob Cunningham, Senior Policy Analyst with the Canadian Cancer Society. So that's how he sees this making a difference. And again, he pointed to other countries and what has gone on there. We did manage to find a little detail with a Columbia University survey on whether or not it matters if someone in your household has smoked. So take this for what it is. Again, we're looking at one study, one survey, and this goes back a few years, but I don't think this is something that necessarily changes that much. Researchers used data from 2004 to 2012, and they did find that... 13% of adolescents whose parent never smoked said they also never smoked. That's not a big number. And then 38% of teens whose parent was a smoker had smoked at least one cigarette. So I guess you look at that. Yeah, there's a difference. Sure. Is it massive? I mean, it's not like you're looking at 95%. I thought it'd be a lot bigger, actually, than 38%. But that's a Columbia survey that goes back a few years now. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.